Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Voices on the Side. Today, I'm talking to Mandana Biscotti. Mandana is an Iranian-American filmmaker, mother, and a fellow Californian like me. She is a storyteller through and through, so passionate about sharing her culture's truth, history, and beauty. I myself realized there was so much that I didn't know or understand about her Iranian heritage. There's just so much that we are not taught in school. We talk about the patience that is required in the creative process, the women in her family who instilled in her a deep connection to her identity, and what it's like to raise mixed-race children. Mandana's directorial debut, The Voice of Dust and Ash, was on the Oscars shortlist and was nominated for Best Music Documentary at the Hollywood Music and Media Awards. You might notice that my side of the audio drops when I ask her about her inspiration in making the film. Hang in there as Mandana's audio is crystal clear. By the way, The Voice of Dust and Ash will soon be available to stream and I simply cannot wait. In the meantime, please enjoy this eye-opening and enlightening conversation with Mandana Biscotti. We'll just start right from the beginning and if you can tell me where you grew up. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Northern California, San Jose. Um, you know, not that many people know it, but I feel like I had a beautiful place to grow up. It was just... Um, we were surrounded by, you know, my parents, grandparents on both sides, and it was just a, a really nice environment. And I lived there until about, a, you know, junior high or so, which is when we moved to Southern California. Right. I didn't know that. You know, I grew up in Cupertino. Oh, okay. Did your whole extended family move with you? Oh, yeah. So basically, my parents um, left right before the Iranian Revolution. And then they sort of helped get both of their sides of the family out of the country during that time. So everybody kind of just came to Northern California area. So, you know, we were really lucky where it just was like everybody sort of congregated in that area and we were all together. So it was really nice. And then, you know, you, of course, you know, you grew up in Northern California. It's, it's nice. It's, you know, the landscape's beautiful. It's, there's like diverse communities. I found it a really, you know, wonderful place to grow up. And when you moved to Southern California, your grandparents also came with you. So your family community stayed together or? No, they, they didn't. So, you know, my father got a job in Southern California and we were as kids really devastated because we didn't want to leave, you know, that's where our entire family was, but we did. And there were aspects of Southern California that I really very much loved, you know, um, the beaches, the environment, it's a beautiful place to live. Obviously I met our mutual friend, Hillary, and I think that's probably about it. <laughs> Was there much of an Iranian community outside of your family when you were where you were? Um, you know, now I would say there's a tremendous amount of Iranians in Orange County. I think at the time, it didn't feel that prevalent when we mm. moved. It felt like there were some and we definitely found them, you know, and found kind of our, our people, but it was not, it, you know, it wasn't the same as being around the family and friends that we had in Northern California. So I would say, no, there was really, it was not nearly as diverse 
as I as I found it living in Northern California. I mean, like probably the opposite to the point where you sort of felt a lot more singled out being not white. So that was a culture shock um, for sure amongst, you know, other parts of the culture that were shocking, so to speak. I mean, and even we, I am, I voice messaged you a few days ago because I was very keen to ensure that I pronounced your name correctly because um, I had been introduced to you years ago with a different pronunciation. And over the last, maybe like a year or two ago, um, the mutual friend that you mentioned was sharing with me that she was, she was mortified that she had ever mispronounced your name, you know, and I, I've gone through similar things with my, my full name has shown because my Korean, you know, my Korean name is Sujin. And if ever my full name mm-hmm. showed, I think it just threw teachers off when they were reading attendance. And um, also my, my last name is not difficult to pronounce, but it, you know, no. it looks like a first name. So people, I often get called Kim. Sure. So is it sure, I mean, sure. like, how did it feel for you with your, I mean, how was roll call for you in school? I mean, this roll, roll call really like, you know, to me now to think about like, maybe because I have a dark sense of humor, I feel like that's one of the, um, it's like the hallmarks of being an immigrant in the Western world, right? It's every immigrant child's worst nightmare is the first day of school and roll call. And I feel like it's kind of sad, but also very comedic. It was, it was mortifying and awful, (laughs) you know, when I, this is just that experience because it made me think about it because, you know, now we can all laugh, I guess, but, you know, as a child, it's, it's, it's scary relatively. And I remember having to correct teachers all the time, you know, when we you had one teacher, it was just the one sort of moment right and then I became very good at being aware of where I was because I was early in the roll call because of my last name was with the C mm. and I, you know, my hand would shoot up and before they could say it or I could see them going, mm, I would say it right then, you know. Wow. And that was, you know, I, I got good at that sort of thing. And they still, you know, mispronounce my name, but I would say the mispronunciation of my name, which is a microaggression, right, began because of teachers in, you know, school not being able to pronounce it. And me as a child just saying, okay, fine, like, I'll go with that. And more than that, you know, if you take it a step further, I mean, if I really think about it, there were repeated attempts to change my name. No. Oh yeah. Can I call you something else? Like, let me guess Mandy. Can I just call you Mandy? (laughs) Right. All the time. Yeah. And, and, or, you know, or something similar, or, you know, just teachers who just never ever were able to say my name and said something, you know, like not my name. And it was like, very bizarre because it's you know you think to yourself people learn words every day and they say them and that's you know just a part of life but for whatever reason it was always a thing and i'm quite proud of myself for not having you know succumbed to that pressure of changing my name to something because that was something that was really heavily pressed upon me like oh i can't really say this can't i just call you this that's cool you know, so it was it was a repeated form of uh, microaggression. My name probably being the first one that I can remember for sure. So 
where do you think you had that self-confidence to know that the actual issue was not with your name or with you, but with the teachers who weren't making the effort? Like how as a child, is it from your parents? Like, is it? I think so. I think, you know, part of it was that um, my parents always sort of instilling in us to feel, you know, cultural pride. That was always a thing, you know, like they never really retreated into their shells of, okay, well, you know, maybe you should say, you know, something else or, you know, they were never ashamed of our culture or heritage. And I actually distinctly remember once my mom coming to probably my kindergarten class and meeting my teachers and them saying my name incorrectly and her saying to them, wait, sorry, who's that? You know, like, who are you referring to? And she sort of looked at me and I did one of these, like, they can't say it, mom. I don't know what to tell you, but she, I rem- I have this distinct memory of her rolling her eyes and sticking out her tongue, like, sure, they can't say it, you know, like, okay. But, you know, I think probably a, definitely a little bit of that coming from my parents. And then realistically, I never felt like a Mandy or whatever other nickname they were trying to impose on me. I knew enough about me or who I felt like I was to say, no, I, you can't call me that. That's not my name. Is that something you find through fellow Iranians? Like, is there, is that cultural pride and like understanding of that uh, connection to your heritage? Is that something you feel that you could say about your overall community? I think, you know, I think the, the, probably the polite answer would be yes. Um, I think uh, across the board, I don't think it's always the case. Um, I think we are a very strong, rich culture. There are many people who have a lot of pride and take pride in our history and, and culture. And then there's always the, you know, the parts of our community who are a little bit more self-loathing if, you know, I was to, to choose a word. And there's I find that to be the the saddest part, but it's also a product of the whole system, right? You know, you get beaten down so much about it that you, some, some of us choose to abandon it completely. And that's the system working, right? You know, and I don't blame anybody for falling into that. That's how it's meant to work by design. You're meant to want to give up something that, you know, people it's, you know, you're, you're meant to want to assimilate, right? As, as perfectly into the boxes that make people comfortable. So I don't, you know, fault anybody for losing their given names and I can completely understand it. It would have made, you know, certainly would have made life a lot easier for me not having to repeatedly correct people. And it's still to this day, it's obviously gotten a lot easier. I feel the more people are exposed, but I still correct people with my name when it comes to that. And I think, I would say, you know, there are definitely members of our people who have succumbed to that and and really just shed everything about the culture as much as they could, just probably to keep themselves safe and um, make life easier in a lot of regards. But, you know, there there's there's both the long and short of of that uh, question. There's both, I would say. Yeah. So I was just asking you about your inspiration to create your film. You know, I think it was a lot of things. Um, If if anything, I feel like I was somewhat writing. I've been writing this film my whole life on some level. It's you know, it was it came from. It was sort of sparked by initially 
the pain of losing my mother, you know, if I really look at sort of what pushed me that direction, I was in a completely different field. And I had gone to law school and had every intention of practicing law and in doing that and um, lost my mother and just sort of broke open. And some of the thoughts that occurred to me were, you know, I think what occurs to people when they lose people they love, uh, you know, oftentimes is, you know, remembering them, not forgetting them, preserving those memories, right? And how do you do that? I started, I, for a long time, I was recording her with really the intention of just preserving her memory, right, for myself um, and having that, right? And then it also occurred to me that much of what I knew about my culture and heritage just came from my mother. Iran has had such a complicated relationship and history with the Western world. And from my perspective, it has felt like growing up, it felt impossible to understand anything unless it was coming from word or mouth or lived experience about my culture and country because I couldn't open up a history book and read about Iran. And in fact, much of the, you know, narrative was rewritten to suit the Western world because what happened between Iran and the West was classified largely yeah. for many, many years, you know, straight up until uh, 2013, until, you know, I believe Madeleine Albright declassified what had happened by the you know the CIA coup uh, d'etat and and it was the really the quietest declassification it felt like the tree that fell in the forest I think for me and for other Iranians it was like aha like can anybody else hear this like the U.S. you know was instrumental in overthrowing the you know Iranian democratically elected prime minister and now I feel seen, but nobody reported on that or you know talked about it. It was just a very it was like the tree that fell in the silent forest, right? So I, you know, was driven by that sense of, well, if that's all I have to hold on to is my mother being this sort of, you know, and father being this sort of orator of my history and culture, and it's not in books, then I should try to do something about this and memorialize my culture in, in a medium that lasts, at least for my, you know, own children's sake, and also partially for me, I think I engaged in that because it felt like something I needed to do to learn more about myself and my heritage. So it was those factors that kind of pushed me into that direction. How long did it take you to bring that to completion? So I started filming roughly uh, 2016. And was meant to be kind of a much smaller project. And then the second I turned on the camera, I just knew that this had to be a full, it had to be a full feature documentary. And I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I just thought that if I kept filming that I'll figure it out, figure out every aspect of it. And so that's really what it was. It was just this over the years, I, I started filming from that point and then really started assembly of the film, I want to say in 2019, like really sitting down and going through everything, you know, with a proper editor. And I had to learn how to do everything myself. So it's the best film school. How did you even do that? Because it wasn't what you studied and, you know, it wasn't what you were training to do as your 
career. Right. Um, it sounds like it was something that was really soul driven and you just went in and you learned on the job. Yeah. Did you have that inner doubt, that voice of inner doubt along the way? Just all like- the time. Yeah, all the time. And I still do. You know, I think I still suffer from an imposter syndrome. You know, anytime I get an email of somebody inviting me as a speaker somewhere, I in the back of my mind, I'm like, are they sure? Like this, they're going <laughs> to they're going to write another email and say, yeah, forget it. We, we made a mistake, you know, but it's something that I felt you know, I've, I've always felt like this, I think artistically, creatively, if I, I feel overrun by feeling like this is, I believe in this, I believe in this story, right? And this is important and people should pay attention. I will find a way to, to, to complete that creative thought, whatever it is. And that's sort of been an ongoing thing, I think in my life, you know, regardless of work, you know, what it is that I'm doing. Um, But creatively, whenever I felt really strongly about something, I've always found a way to get it done, I guess. And with this, I've known really kind of in my soul and my fiber that if for a long time, I felt like if people knew and understood the history of Iran, then it could potentially change, I, I think, the way that you know Iranians and the culture are viewed and also potentially provide some hope for peace and understanding and lead to some kind of change. And that's really what drove it. And I felt like this is bigger than me and I need to, with the person who the film is, is about it, I felt like he was is one of the greatest Iranian heroes that ever existed in the country, you know, and by the terms, I think famous was extremely well known and well, well regarded more than anybody else. But if he would walk on the streets in the Western world, most people wouldn't have any idea who he is, right? So that, and there's millions of people in the diaspora, right? Um, but, you know, even that I felt an obligation as this was somebody that I knew, Um, and cared about deeply. And he had really sort of entrusted his legacy in my hands by letting me film him and ask him all these questions about his life. I also felt that obligation to, to do his legacy justice. So I had to try to do it to the best of my ability. And I really clawed my way to everything, every aspect of the film that I got done. It felt like it was like I fought to to do everything, like whatever it was, the sound, the, you know, animation, the, you name it. it, it all felt like I had to prove myself in that regard to get help or finish doing something myself and just do my best, you know? And you did all this while having fairly young children. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and how old are they now? So um, my oldest just turned seven and um, my youngest is four. So, you know, I think when I started the assembly, they were maybe both still in diapers. And I had also my poor dog, who my husband sent me the video this morning, my best friend, who was literally my best friend, Sonny, had just become paralyzed. So he was also in diapers. I had definitely had a lot of little, you know, little lives that needed a lot of help and care. And, but also, you know, that probably provided a, a stronger sense of purpose for me too. having these little lives in your hands, you want to you want to do better, right? So 
It was not easy, but uh, I read this quote from Toni Morrison about like stolen hours, I think she called it, you know, my most productive work times are usually from 9 to 3 a.m., I would say. That's when I feel like I've unlocked something, you know, working during that time. So, you know, I, I made it work. And it sounds like you mentioned that part of why you wanted to tell the story was for your children mm -hmm. to have something about their heritage that they could be proud of, they could learn from, that it was just kind of in their in their life where where it was absent from our generation right, right. yeah absolutely how much does your background because they're they're mixed they're mixed race like my kids right yep yes obviously there are they are aware of their mixed race <laughs> background is it something that is just sort of for example with my kids it's about well Avi's only two but um with Riker I have talked to him a lot about Taekwondo. He does Taekwondo. He started when he was a toddler. And when he would whine about it, I would say, you know, this is, this comes from our Korean mm -hmm. culture. And because we don't live there, we don't get to go there. We don't actually have our Korean relatives nearby. This is one of the ways that we can, you know, you can be connected to it and through food yes. as well. He's really into um, like, is this Korean? Is this Korean? Can we order Korean? And um, it, we talk about it actively, yeah. you know, and I wonder if you do similar things. With your yeah, kids. absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's really hard. It's hard to maintain that when you're not surrounded by, you know, your family of origin. And, and I think to a large extent, it's, it helps to have, you know, people of your culture around you when it comes to raising your children with that. But, you know, same thing in our house. I, I, you know, we try to have, Persian food and explain to them the the once a week Farsi school when sometimes, you know, my daughter doesn't want to wake up and do it. Um, I, you know, you try to, you try to, you know, instill in them in the same way, you know, maybe I would say it was different for me as, as a child growing up. I remember, and it's was incredibly effective. It's probably the only reason I fluently speak Farsi is that my grandparents only spoke to me in Farsi. They, you know, didn't understand English. So if I wanted to communicate with them, that was the only way. And then, you know, continued to do that, right? To the point where, and it goes with one of those things with experiences in childhood. I remember my grandmother, both of my parents were working as well when we were, you know, little kids. So my grandmother watched us um, quite a bit at the time. She was almost like a second mother to me. And we, I remember we would walk to school to go pick up my older sister and just some of the things she did that made her stand out, you know, as an immigrant, she, she had no concept of crosswalks or streetlights. So we would just cross straight in the middle of a road, wherever it was, she would hold up my backpack, like she was a crossing guard and we would just go, you know? And then when we would get to school, bless her, she's just made up her own rules. We wouldn't even wait until there was like the distinct like this is the bell my sister's done with school she we just picked her up it was there was no like it's 12 or it's two it was like we're here where she's coming and then i would have to translate from my grandmother to the teacher or whoever and i was i mean my sister's a year and a half older than me so if you can imagine <laughs> i was like i mean i don't know you know very young when I was doing this, but I was like her little mobile translator. 
And even, <laughs> and even for, you know, TV shows when she would watch like probably stuff that was wildly inappropriate for my age too, but she would watch soap operas and have me translate by the, you know, everything. It was like, I was like a, probably like a CNN, you know, interpreter by five. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't it sounds that. like um I don't know what your original question like, was I probably went far off that but no no that is so it's so interesting and I was gonna say it sounds like the women in your family are very strong yeah the way you describe um your mother and your grandmother and this is something where in Korean and I think generally East Asian yeah cultures women are we're kind of taught to be quiet, right? Right. We're taught to um, not speak up. And I think culturally, like Korean culture overall is kind of expected. There's this like real hierarchy within the culture with how you speak to elders, how you, you know, just all this stuff. So when we, when immigration happens and then assimilation is expected, I think a lot of East Asian cultures fit really neatly into that, yeah. you know, just like keep your head down and then we'll let you get a job and be successful and have a taste of the American right. dream. And this also kind of crosses over into the question of that, that our mutual friend Hillary posed mm-hmm. to me when she said, I'm so happy you're going to interview Mandana, but she's not Asian, right? you know, and and I wrote to you in the mild panic, like, because I was just thinking of it geographically, right? Like right, right, right. Iran is part of Asia. And I was also just desperately excited to have you be a part of this project. Um, and I, so I wonder, I guess I'm asking two different questions. Like culturally, are women, is it your family specifically, or is it more just like encouraged and accepted for women to be strong, you know, and to speak, speak what is true for you. So, you know, I think that's a really interesting, those are very, all very interesting questions. And I don't even, you know, pretend to be an expert on any of them. Um, And I, I could just share sort of what my opinion is, but I feel like, and this is something that actually kind of goes back to, you know, again, the culture, but Iran was not historically, I would say Iranian women sort of in the very first Persian empires were held to much higher regard than they are now, believe it or not. So my my name actually comes from one of the first Iranian, I would say the first Iranian queen who was the mother of Cyrus the Great. And this is a kind of a, a very mild history lesson, I guess, but Cyrus the Great was the first, you know, he wrote the very first declaration of human rights. He had one of the greatest Persian empires and promoted equality and it, although he you know they conquered different um, regions was always respectful to various different religions and backgrounds and and actually abolished slavery you know and women were actually women were working in iran at the time and had equal pay believe it or not that was a thing for many many years um until there was turnover in you know in the country societally it was not something that was ingrained, believe it or not, in the Persian culture. That was something that came much later on and I would say was solidified by the Islamic Republic and has become much more of a thing 
So I would say generationally, the people who immigrated from Iran right around 1979, you can't take that away. You know, people now see the images and, you know, the videos of the women in Iran who are incredibly brave and are fighting for human rights and doing so without, you know, now that there, there's men, you know, standing beside them, but there's little girls also doing this fearlessly. This is not something that just appeared overnight, you know, this is part of the, the culture. And after, you know, being kind of beaten down and told to be more subservient over the past 43 or so years, but I would say like the short answer of that is no, we were, this was not something that was cultural for us. And it still isn't witnessed, you know, as we, you know, evidenced by the, the women who are fighting today. That's more of a newer thing. That was kind of really one of the biggest things of the Islamic Republic for, for our culture. So I think that's what's been shocking, you know, for those of us who are lucky enough and privileged to have gotten out and our families have gotten out to now see what has sort of become as to what the expectations of women are in society now compared to what they were. That's the one on the one hand. And then, you know, the other part that, you know, that Hillary raised, which I think is interesting and probably could teach a class on this issue. And it's still something that I think is very unclear to a lot of people, right? So yes, Iran is in Asia. That is 100% geographically accurate. But when it comes to, I think, Iranian people calling themselves Asian people, that's not something you largely culturally identify, like under that umbrella. So it's like, you know, it's it's a few things. It's, it's geographically, yes, but as far as culturally um, saying that that's, you know, part of your background, I would, in the broad sense, I would say most Iranians would opt to say, oh, I'm Iranian or I'm Persian or I'm Middle Eastern, right? Is Iranian and Persian interchangeable? Yes. Okay. Yeah. hundred percent. Such an ignorant question, but I'm like, no, I just want to no, really put it out there. At all. Yeah. It's not at all ignorant. Um, you know, this was something that is, that I think baffles a lot of people who I think for years were like, wait, are you Persian or Iranian? You know, that's a very common question. So I think, you know, I had this uh, mentor who said to me, well, the Middle East doesn't really exist. It's not a thing. Because you would say largely, like, I think we were talking like, um, when people are from Pakistan, they might actually say, I'm Asian, right? But to say I'm, you know, Asian, usually, I think most people interpret that as Eastern Asian cultures, right? So it's complicated. Um, It's complicated. I think it's Iranians feel that they have, you know, their own distinct cultural background and identity. So you can include Iran in a discussion about, you know, racism against Asian people, but I wouldn't say that Iranians culturally identify as Asian, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, um, it really speaks to individual Eastern Asian cultures too. And this is why I wanted so many different backgrounds represented on this podcast is because there's this misunderstanding of like the Asian monolith, kind of this like grouping of, for example, I've always just been assumed to be Chinese for most of my life, right? Because it's the biggest country, you know, like, so, oh, if you look like in that certain way, then you must be Chinese. But there's so many unique cultures within this great continent. And um, I love that 
Iranians have such a defined understanding of their identity. And I'm curious to hear more about the Middle East, because this was where Hillary was coming from as well, was like, no, she's Middle Eastern. Mm -hmm. And it made me think like, oh, well, where does Middle Eastern fit in, in like the categorization? And as you just said, one of your professors or mentors actually was making the point that there's no such thing as a Middle East. Is that a Western construct? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when it came to drawing lines to determine things financially in the world, it was like a Western global construct. So, and it's a few things, right? So when people are are grouped under different categories, you can say continentally, geographically, we come from the Asian continent. But, you know, when you're asking how you identify as far as culture, I would say Iranian people will not say I'm Asian. Because, you know, like every culture, you're, everyone feels that they have their own specific historic background that, you know, needs to be kind of seen. If there's, you know, like a census box where you're, they're asking for your racial or ethnic background. Is Middle Eastern something that shows up on those kinds of forms? Sometimes no. Sometimes it does not. And that was another thing I think growing up that was really confusing for me. You know, when it when there was only sometimes like two or three boxes, it was like, well, which one am I checking? And I I think my parents didn't really have the answer to that. So it was so the answer was sometimes, well, you just check white. It's like, well, I don't mm. feel like we're white, but just if that's your only option, that's the one you're going to check. It's been a, that's a, that's another complicated one as well. And then how do you feel about it on behalf of your children? Is it something, I mean, there's still little, so I guess you're not really having deep conversations, but I have talked to my, my older one, especially during the last few years of the rise in Asian hate crimes, mm-hmm. which is definitely been, I feel like, uh, more targeted towards East Asian. I don't know if you would agree with that, but it's, you know, like as far as, yeah, pertaining to just like during the pandemic and just the scapegoating for COVID and stuff. So um, I had a, there were a few months where I was afraid to walk to school on my own Mm -hmm. because AV was an infant and um, it was just me and the two kids. And I would ask my white friends, you know, other families to walk with us because we have a mile walk to school and we're in Brooklyn and you know like I just was nervous I didn't know what would happen and so that led to conversations with my son about what it means to not be white in this world and of course he he um, at school discussed Black Lives Matter and has seen me be upset over news and I'm terrible at hiding any sort of emotion and he and I are really connected and he you know we just have conversations and I do you do you have you gone there yet with your children yeah I mean one thing about me is I felt like as soon as I felt like my kids were understanding more complex things which I feel like every parent feels that way but I felt like it was pretty young for both of my kids I completely have gone there both of them have an understanding of our Iranian heritage and culture, and they're proud of it. And they also know as much as I've been able to explain to them about the current struggle for freedom. And they will, you know, proudly go report this back to their classmates and friends at school. Um, And 
and that's a you know a good thing it's it's something that we talk about as as much as as possible and i think that they see how it's impacted me and i think they've taken that on as well and realize how important it is and how privileged and lucky we are to be you know living in this country and I think of it a lot of times as, you know, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie Sliding Doors, where we very well, you know, the way I explained it is, you know, my parents could have made some decisions and we could have been living there, you know, very well could have been in that environment. And now it's, there's more of a sense of responsibility then, right, to, to speak up and try to contribute to some kind of change. So we do talk about it and they definitely do have an understanding and I and you know I think because of that it's also made them I think more caring individuals as well so have you been back have you can you go and visit at all no I mean have you ever been able to during your lifetime no I've never I've never actually set foot in Iran um and wow. as a, also a consequence of making this film I will never in the current state of things my hope is to definitely be able to you know in a free iran that's my hope and if i'm honest goal um but i will not under this regime be uh i'm not allowed to go did, did your parents after they immigrated did they go back at all or have they never said once you left is it like you just were borders actually closed at that point or yeah, you know, it became incredibly hard to leave and you were questioned and, it, you know, if it seemed like you were leaving, then they wouldn't let you go, right? So it, the people literally, they were escaping and trying to do whatever they could with their entire livelihoods. You know, we had family largely whose their bank accounts were frozen, their properties were taken. Um, your personal belongings are also, you know, given up. So there's a lot that was left behind, but ultimately just to have your health and your family and well-being and get out while you could is is what I think everybody was grateful for. But that concept too of also, I find it so interesting, right? So one of the things that I think I experienced during COVID was I think right before the election when people were sort of getting news that there's something scary or troubling might happen. And, and people were already very much in like, the weird space of COVID and avoiding people not, you know, being out. But I remember we went out to like um, a diner and I, we were looking around and this was a, you know, in Beverly Hills and, you know, everything was boarded up and there was really no people around. But then I kept sort of seeing these Persian people, you know, like some people walking kind of, I, I think I saw, there's, you know, generally a lot of Persians who live in LA and Beverly Hills, but I saw, I would say, probably mostly Persian people on that day. And then I, it occurred to me that this was not something that scary for Iranian people who had fled during the revolution. Because if you really think about it, if there was going to be some overthrow of government, which was like what the whispers were, they had all kind of been through this and they weren't scared. It was people, you know, my, my parents' age, kind of just sort of going about their everyday and didn't seem that scared. And I thought, oh, well, that's why, right? It's not something they hadn't been through before. If it got, you know, to that point, these people, they know what to do in that <laughs> circumstance. That's so interesting. Um, 
I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned like the history having been rewritten mm-hmm. for the West. And I'm wondering with my questioning, it makes me think of when people ask me if I'm my family is from North or South Korea and there's like a real lack of understanding, like, uh, no, you can't. And actually just um, over New Year's, this was in London, but somebody was like, well, I could go visit North Korea right now if I wanted, right? And I was like, no, you can't. And I'm just like hearing myself ask this question to you. I'm like, oh my God, that's as like the ignorance (laughs) or the lack of information is the same, isn't it? Like, and I wonder how much, I feel like I paid attention in my school most of my classes and, you know, and particular, I just like, I feel like I did well in school, but I'm wondering how much of it is, how much we were not taught. Like, why do I not have this information? Like what, you know what I mean? Like, and why, and similarly, do people not understand that? Like, I couldn't possibly be from North Korea if I'm in America, mm-hmm. unless I was a literal ref, one of like the handful of refugees. Do you think that my ignorance is from like, is this a common thing that you get asked or is this like personal to me? Because I'm wondering like how much of it is just like missing from education, you know, being educated here. It's all missing. That's what's truly alarming about it, right? There's there is this huge disconnect, right? You know, so that's why I don't, you know, necessarily it's I'm not bothered by it because it's something I've, I've experienced my whole life. Right. And I would say I'm not not to say that it's completely missing now. There are wonderful educational programs that now exist that didn't even like, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Right. But they're new. They're relatively new. Um, you know, like Stanford and Harvard now have like an Iranian studies program. UCLA is also developing a stronger one as well. So but this didn't exist when I was uh, growing up and the history didn't exist. And, you know, the disconnect also was so crazy to me because I felt like I came from such a proud, rich culture that like was such a part of both, you could say, ancient times, like the empires, right? And and also still today, I feel like there are so many strong culturally rich Iranian communities in the diaspora that exist but there's this big gap, right? And and when I was a kid, I felt it more prevalent to now where it felt like, oh, we're this great, you know, rich, vibrant culture. And yet, you know, it felt like, especially I would say around the Iranian hostage crisis, which is sort of when I think Iran became more on everyone's radar, probably more even for the first time, right? Because that was the beginning of, I forget what it was, but the news program that covered the um, hostage crisis that was created for it, it was kind of the first blip on the radar of Iranian history was the hostage crisis. The reality was that there was a lot of really amazing things going on in Iran for hundreds of years before that, right? But the media started to pay attention then. These are savage people who are, you know, holding hostages. And for what reason? And they couldn't really explicate the real reasons of why, not to say that it's ever excusable, but there was no explanation of, well, you know, we actually had the CIA come in uh, in 1953 and we staged a coup and overthrew the, the government. And they feel like we owe them money. That, there was never any conversations about that. This was all classified, right? So instead you're perpetuating negative stereotypes and you know, racism and misinformation. And that was sort of what everyone went with. So 
it became almost, uh, you know, people were embarrassed to say I'm Persian or I'm Iranian because that was the association as terrorists who hold hostage and they're savage and this is what their country is. It's purely what we know to be sort of the, the stereotypical terrorist country, so to speak. And that was, that stuck since then. And that's really all people knew, which, you know, sometimes when I would say, well, no, actually this was not what Iran was. Like, let me show you pictures of how my parents grew up. This, this was always a huge eye opener for people. And it was like, well, how did nobody ever know this? Well, because to explain the true story would then have to, you'd, you'd be going into the US and UK's imperialistic, shameful <laughs> practices and nobody ever did that. So, you know, for me, it always felt very, and having known the truth about, you know, what I felt like if people knew about, which was probably the, the CIA coup and, and sorts of other things that had happened in, the, in Iran's history. I felt like if people knew that, then it'll help change the narrative. It'll help lessen the, the racism and the prejudice um, potentially. And this needs to happen, right? But this is something that I always felt was so strange. The gap of like, well, I know this about our culture and heritage, but other people don't. Why do I constantly have to explain this? Well, that's because it's not out there, right? And in, I would say in you know recent years, it's been more out there and there are you know huge university programs now dedicated to just Iran's culture and heritage and history and all these things are being explained much more thoroughly than they were in the past. So I personally felt the need to try to bridge that gap and, and help um, because it felt so disconnected. I knew that there was nothing about our culture that I didn't, who I wasn't proud of. And yet there existed this sort of like push away from that, that I felt was very unfair and I needed to, to explain. And I, I love that you took that all in and created beauty and art, you know, from it. And I'm just like, as we're wrapping up here, would love to know for, for you on like a personal level, like where do you find the bandwidth to hold heavy, heavy truths about your history, you know, like this, and this quite um, overwhelming hope for things to change in our lifetime. It's, it's a lot, right? What do you do to take care of yourself to find like the motivation and the energy to keep going? Like, and do you have to sometimes just disconnect from the work piece of it? And just like, what do you do to unwind or do you unwind? Yeah. I mean, I, for me, that's probably exercise or creativity, right? Like I always try to explain to my husband, sometimes when it seems like I'm doing nothing, it's just a pause that I'm taking because I need that. You know, when you're doing a lot of creative output, you have to sort of just take a pause and do something else or go out in nature and just spend time with your kids in a, you know, a present moment. Um, so yeah, those are all the things that I would say fill me up, but also doing creative things with my kids. You know, one of my favorite things to do with my daughter is we call you know, a jam sesh where I'll sort of go on the, the piano and come up with some sort of repetitive melody or something and she'll make up lyrics and sing a song and, you know, we'll just sort of do that over and over, but just riff off each other. And I can see how it fills her up too, you know? So I think for me, the just unlocking 
any kind of potential that I have probably it's about embracing who I am right authentically and then understanding what I'm passionate about obviously my culture and heritage and then what my values are and you know what are my strengths and even if I doubt myself like I'd never made a movie before I one of my strengths is you know determination and I'll figure it out right and then at the end of the day, just aligning all of that with purpose. And that's just, I feel like my own personal recipe. And and I that's something I try to instill with, you know, my kids as well. I could, I'm just thinking, I could seriously just listen to you talk for just on and on. And I'm just like, I know exactly why you get asked to be a speaker at various events. I mean, I'm just like inspired and better informed. Like this was a majorly educational conversation for I'm sure not just me, but for a lot of other people that are not as, as clued in with your culture. And um, I can't thank you enough for your generosity and your time and just sharing, sharing all of that. I'm going to include, I'm going to include information to where people can find is your, your film is. So it will be, um, it will be available to stream on Amazon and uh, Apple very soon is what I'm told, but there's processes that it goes through. So it's, it will be, but it's, it's also going to be broadcast by the BBC soon as well. So I can't, I can't plug an exact date, but these are things that will be happening. Yeah, we will um, keep an eye on it at least. And I mean, the patience also you must have to have started this in 2016. And it's, it's is that what you said? 2016 yeah. when you started filming? Yeah. And it's 2023. And um, I mean, labor of love, right? Well, Just also the luck of timing love. helped me, I think, quite a bit because I've been in my soul pushing this to anybody who would listen to me, right? Like, this is important. You know, Iranian people have a story to tell. This man has an incredible story to tell. The people are suffering. There's no basic human rights. Like, people should care. And then Iran did what it does best, which is blow up every couple of years. Because this wasn't a first, you know, the Masamini murder wasn't the first incident. There have been every couple of years, there is one very similar to that it sort of, I think, put the wind in my sails and it got people to care more. People who weren't ever paying attention to just care in general. So, you know, I said to people, I don't feel like it's a, a like a good luck because it feels bittersweet. You know, it's like, I should hope people would care, but sort of the circumstances I think have brought more eyes to the fight that Iranian people face every day. I'm getting chills because it just feels like it's, it's cemented from the universe, you know, that like this is meant, you are meant to be a voice in, in this fight and in this um, education. And I'm just so happy to have had this conversation. Thank you. This was a pleasure. This was really fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. Voices on the Side is produced by Just Breathe. You can find out more at justbreatheproject.com. I would love it if you would tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support so we can keep bringing you these amazing conversations.